Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. This morning, the scripture reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. And that's uh, page 611 if you're reading from your pew Bibles. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Good morning. Merry Christmas. It is very good to see you all here today and um, proud of you for coming out to worship the Lord on today. Um, it's uh, such a privilege to worship the Lord every Lord's Day, but uh, today when there are so many um, conflicting obligations and appointments and all that sort of thing going on that you've chosen to come out and worship God uh, just as a demonstration of your love and your faith, and I'm very glad you've done so. It's good to see all of our regular folks, but uh, you know, I think this is a pretty great church most of the time, but uh, your presence with us today, presence with us today makes it even better. Your presence is our gift on this Christmas day, and we're just delighted that you have chosen to be with us uh, today. Man, what a beautiful and lovely day it is. White as snow. I love old-fashioned ads. They really are delightful to me. And the one you see there on the screen is uh, well older than most. But I do remember as a kid uh, watching the commercials for all of the different kinds of bleach, all of them competing for your business. And uh, it used to delight me to watch, uh, of course, when I was a kid, it was always the housewives that were on the commercials. Now it's, you know, just a, a smattering of different kinds, kinds of people. But it was always Mama who was in the laundry room, and she uh, uh, was using some other brand of bleach, and she would get the whites out of the washing machine. Well, and they just wouldn't be all that white, you know, and she'd be disappointed. But then something would happen, a beam of sunshine would come in, and, and the, the right kind of bleach would drop into her lap. She would do a load of laundry with that, and man, would those things ever come out just as gleaming and as perfect as they could possibly be. Well, you know, that's kind of the idea that is behind several passages in Scripture that talk about what is possible for us, not with regard to our clothing, having really nothing eternally to do with our outward appearance, but on the inside with regard to sin. And it is this whitening, this cleansing, this purifying that the Lord is able to do in the lives and in the hearts of those who trust in him, obey him, and follow him that is being spoken about when Jesus wrote his letter to the church in Sardis, we read in Revelation 3, verses 5 and 6. He promised, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. 
and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's another important passage in the Bible that talks about how God can take those of us who have stained our garments, so to speak, with sin, and how he can make them white as snow. And that comes from the book of Isaiah, the Messianic prophet. I'll say more about him and about his work of prophecy in a few minutes, Lord willing. But it comes from the book of Isaiah chapter 1. And I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. I did not put the page number on the screen as I usually do because I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation today for the sake of simplicity and clarity. So if you can follow along, that's fine. But if not, I hope that you'll just open up your ears and tune in and listen to what the Word of God has to say. Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. These are the visions that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. He saw these visions during the years when Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah. And from here the message kind of goes downhill. Verse 2. Listen, O heavens, pay attention, earth. This is what the Lord says. The children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. Even an ox knows its owner, and a donkey recognizes its master's care. But Israel doesn't know its master. My people don't recognize my care for them. Oh, what a sinful nation they are, loaded down with a burden of guilt. They are evil people, corrupt children who have rejected the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why do you continue to invite punishment, God asks? Must you rebel forever? Your head is injured and your heart is sick. In other words, your thought processes are all messed up. Verse 6, you are battered from head to foot, covered with bruises, welts, and infected wounds, without any soothing ointments or bandages. Your country lies in ruins and your towns are burned. Foreigners plunder your fields before your eyes and destroy everything they see. Verse 8, beautiful Jerusalem stands abandoned like a watchman's shelter in a vineyard, like a lean-to in a cucumber field after the harvest, like a helpless city under siege. Verse 9, If the Lord of heaven's armies had not spared a few of us, we would have been wiped out like Sodom, destroyed like Gomorrah. Listen to the Lord, you leaders of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, people of Gomorrah. What makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they are all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. Strong language. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. 
Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. If you will only obey me, you will have plenty to eat. But if you turn away and refuse to listen, you will be devoured by the sword of your enemies. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now this is... um, in its entirety, not a passage that is probably read very often in worship services today because, well, it just isn't all that encouraging, <laughs> at least not on the surface. It's just a straightforward rant from God, by the way, a worthy one and a deserved one, considering the original audience and to which Isaiah was speaking in writing, a rant from God about how ridiculous it was for a nation of hypocrites to come to live their lives day by day by day by day in sinful rebellion against him with no concern whatsoever about what he delighted in and what he hated and what pleased him and what didn't and then to well come to church on Sunday so to speak they would go on Sabbath at that period of time make their offerings and and so forth but 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 let's just apply it to our world today come to church on Sunday and, and dress up nice and sing praises to God and and bow their heads in prayer all piously and pretend like they actually cared what God thought when they did not deep down care at all that's what was going on in Israel and by the way all of these sites that God narrates here in these first 20 verses of Isaiah chapter 1 were things that were not actually happening during the time in which that passage was written, but they were simply a vision from God about what could be the case in Israel if they did not repent. And so it's a warning. But it's not only a warning, it's also a plea. Because there in verses 17 through 20, God is saying, in spite of all of this, in spite of how bad it has gotten in Israel, we could say today, in spite of how bad it has gotten in America morally, in spite of how unjust this nation has historically been, we could go on and just pile up the accusations against this nation, and we could come up with just a collection of them today, all of which would be true. We could even, if we were bold enough, be more personal about it. We could just open up our hearts and be transparent and we could let everything that that we think that we ought not to think, all of the things that we say that we ought not to say, all the things that we do and have done that we should not have done, all of the sins that could be piled up against our accounts and brothers and sisters, it is a mountain of them. But God says, I'm willing to put all of that behind you I'm willing to put all of that behind me. He just says, come, let's settle this. Let's reason together, some of your versions say. He is able and willing to make your garments, so to speak, your life, your soul, that is red with the blood of all of the evil that you've done, whiter than any bleach can make it. One of the jobs of Bible teachers is to interpret the scriptures and that doesn't mean we make stuff up out of thin air. It means that you take in consideration what was going on at the time of the original writing of this passage and 
and, and you, you get the principles out of it, the meat out of it. And you, you, you look at the world we live in today and you think about what's going around us today. And so what is the lesson that God would have us to get from this passage and, and to apply it to our world, to our lives today in a way that makes sense in the 21st century? Well, there are a lot of differences between us and the people to whom Isaiah originally wrote. Uh, we don't live under the law of Moses anymore. We live under the covenant of Christ. And so the way that we make sacrifices is different. Uh, Jesus' sacrifice has fulfilled all of that Old Testament system. The blood of bulls and goats was only looking forward to Jesus. And now we celebrate in his sacrifice. And the way that we worship has changed. And, well, so many aspects of the culture that we live in are different uh, today in the United States of America, anywhere in the world today than it was in 8th century B.C. Israel, the time into which I Isaiah wrote, the time of his uh, serving as a prophet. But there are some things that are still very much the same between then and now. We are all sons and daughters of God that have been called to faithfulness, godliness, and righteousness, and in holiness, and we are all failing in many ways. That's our reality. So today, everybody in this room, it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter how close you are to Jesus or how far you've got to, to go to get to where you feel close to Jesus, whoever you are, you are called to the holiness of Christ and you are failing to live up to that in many ways. That's your reality. It's my reality. That's my daily life and yours. That's our struggle deep down inside. My garments based upon my thoughts, my garments based upon my words, my garments, based upon my actions, are red with the blood of sin. That's me. But today I can tell you with joy that in reality, my garments are white as snow. Not because of anything that I've done, but because of what God has been done, what God has done for me. Because God has called me and I've answered that call and we've reasoned together. We've settled this and he has done the work. And if you are in Christ this morning, the same thing is true for you. You see, there are consequences for sin. The same book, of course, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you. Nor is his ear too deaf to hear your call. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. You know, not everything bad that happens to someone in life is a punishment for their sins. And any preacher or teacher that says otherwise is doing great harm to people. That's not the case at all. There is a devil, and the devil has a certain amount of leash that he has been given for a certain amount of time. And his whole purpose, as far as I can tell, uh, for existing is to do evil and harm to people, and you've got to understand that. But if you are a person who is in covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and you find yourself wrestling in prayer for a time that continues to be extended and extended, and you're thinking to yourself, where is God? Why is God not listening to me? I just wish more people would stop and think, maybe God is answering me by not answering me. Maybe there's something that he's trying to tell me that I need to be thinking about, something that I need to be doing, something that I need to get right in my life. And if I'm saying this to you and you're feeling that this is speaking to you today, then tell me about it after services. We can get together and talk about this and hopefully counsel through this and try 
you know, to find, you know, what it is that you need to be doing in your life to move forward in the right way. But the point of this passage is just for us to recognize God is just and holy and righteous, and it is absolutely essential that God be altogether 100% on the side of good and righteousness and holiness and, and be perfectly so. Because if God is tainted with evil in any way, then the whole fabric of everything exists that exists is ruined and hopeless. He must keep himself separate from sin. He must. And it is for, in our best interest that he does. And that means as the just judge, there has to be consequences for sin. There absolutely must be consequences for sin. Now, there are different reasons why people may never do what the Lord is calling them to do in order to make things right in their lives with regard to their sins because people have different attitudes about sin. And we can see all of these attitudes in our world today. There are some people that are angry about sin. They're just angry that you bring up the subject of sin. They're angry that you might even imply that they might have sins in their lives. Don't you dare judge me. How dare you? Who do you think you are to tell me anything? Well, that's the anger, the anger uh, response to preaching and teaching about the reality of sin. And, uh, well, it's, it's not a good response. It's not one that leads to you reasoning together with God, working things out together with God. Being angry about the fact that you are, in fact, a sinner, which is true for every one of us, is only going to keep you from coming to the Lord to see to it that you can be washed clean. So why be angry about it? You know, well, there are people that are just apathetic about it. I don't care. It make any difference to me. I don't care what God says. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what you say. You know, I'm just going to live out my truth and do my thing, and I'm going to be me. It doesn't matter what, it, what anybody thinks. Apathy. You're just not shrugging it off. Shrugging it off. You know, if you were the God of the universe, then shrugging it off might work. But seeing as in how you're not the God of the universe, shrugging it off doesn't mean God has shrugged it off. Does that make sense? All right, so let's make sure we keep our feet firmly planted in reality on the real ground. There's pretense, of course. Pretense, a.k.a. hypocrisy. Oh, nobody's going to notice. I'll clean up real good on Sunday. I'll look pretty on Sunday. And everything just everybody's going to think I'm the best thing since sliced bread. They're not going to know what I'm doing with the balance of my time. I remember what uh, was written through Moses in the book of Numbers. Be sure your sin will find you out. You can play for a while, but you can't play forever. Eventually the truth will out. Of course, then there's denial. My good outweighs my evil. This probably speaks to a larger portion of the earth's population than I probably can even imagine. Where most people just live their daily lives and they just, well, they're trying to just basically be decent good people to pay their taxes and, you know, don't tear their neighbor's fences down and, you know, don't lie, cheat and steal and rob and all that sort of stuff. And every now and then they do an act of charity or try to do something kind and help a little old lady across the street or any of the proverbial sort of stuff. And they think, well, my good outweighs my evil. So on judgment day when I, you know, meet St. Peter at the gate, all of which, by the way, is just a mythical idea about But anyway, so when I meet St. Peter at the gate and, you know, my, my life is being weighed in the balance, the good is going to outweigh the evil. And so even if Peter doesn't like me, he's going to have no choice but to reluctantly shrug his shoulders and say, okay, I guess you get to go in. I think that's probably in some version, maybe a little bit of a cartoonish version of the thought process that is on many people's minds in the world, but that's not the way things work. It's not the way things work. If God is a just God and you've done evil, if you've done injustice, then justice must be done upon you. Those sins must be punished somehow or some way. Either you're going to have to bear the punishment for them or somebody else is. Those are the only two options that exist in the universe. 
I hope that makes sense. Finally, there's the truth. Some people just own up to the truth about their sins. Isaiah the prophet is a great example of that. I want us to look now at Isaiah chapter 6 and listen to this wonderful, powerful passage, verses 1 through 5 of Isaiah 6. Isaiah continues, It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, burning ones, angels, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Notice verse 5. Then I said, It's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips, yet I I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. That's reality. One of the reasons why I think it is easy for many of us to well, underplay the ugliness of our sins is because none of us have yet received a vision like Isaiah received a vision. Now, nobody has ever actually seen the full glory of God and lived. Isaiah only saw a vision of the Lord. The, the, the train of his robe was filling the whole temple, not even a toe. The train of his robe was filling the whole temple. His being was so exalted in this vision that he was able to get a glimpse of the holiness and the wonder and power of God, and it took him to his core and brought him to his knees in realization of who he actually was as a man. My friends, I want to tell you today that if you're going to be victorious over sin in your life, if you're going to be able to, to get past and, and avoid the eternal consequences of those sins, you need to have an Isaiah chapter 6 moment in your life. Now, you're probably not going to be given a heavenly vision. I'm not expecting that. If you have a dream like this that gets you to that point, praise the Lord for it. But brothers and sisters, Isaiah's vision being recorded for us in Scripture is enough. I mean, it gives us the experience of this. We can put ourselves in his shoes, so to speak, and experience this vision. But we've got to understand what sin looks like in the presence of Almighty God. Only then are we going to be brought into a, a realistic assessment of what it means to be in sin. And so we looked at those different attitudes that folks in the world have about sin, maybe that we sometimes have had about sin, but we need to contrast those with God's attitude about sin, the way that God sees things. So people say, don't you judge me, don't you dare judge me. God persistently says, I will judge you, I will judge you, I will judge you. And he will judge you. People say, I don't care. What's the difference to me? Why am I going to be concerned about sin? And God says, I care. I care about your sins. People make that pretense, play the hypocrite game, and they say, no one will notice, no one will see, Nobody's going to figure it out. I'm too smart for them. And God says, you're not too smart for me. I see right through you. You can deny that you're in sin. 
Well, God, I mean, don't you know that I've done many mighty good works? Go read in your own time Matthew chapter 7 in the concluding part of the Sermon on the Mount and see some people saying that very thing on Judgment Day. And, and Jesus will recognize that they're stained by their evil. They're not even aware of that. The truth of the matter is, when a soul, when any person, and, and, and listen, I mean this absolutely literally, any person, regardless of what you've done, regardless of how much of it you've done, regardless of how long you have been doing it, if you will come to the foot of the cross, so to speak, to the throne room of God, metaphorically, if you will come to the truth about your sins and bow the knee before God and confess them before God, God's response in reality to your sins is going to be the same that it was for Isaiah. He will help you. Because that passage we just read from Isaiah chapter 6 continues in verse 6 in this way. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Praise the Lord for his mercy and grace. We would be dead and waiting to die were it not for the grace of God. And so when I say that I stand before you today, yeah, my suit is dark gray and my sweater is literally just as red as it can be. But in the eyes of God, the garments that my spirit is clothed in, man, they are white as wool. Not because I deserve it. Because God knows, and many of you know as well, I do not deserve it but I've been given this gift because of what God has done, and I'm so very grateful. So I mentioned Isaiah, the messianic prophet he is often called because, well, probably none of the prophets, maybe all of them combined, don't, don't say more about the coming, he was the coming Messiah at that time than Isaiah does. So much about Jesus is hidden away in that 8th century B.C. prophet. That means more than 700 years before Jesus was born, these mighty prophecies about the nature of his birth, the nature of his life, his ministry, the accomplishment of his purposes, the atonement for our sins, even things that haven't happened yet, judgment day and eternity to come. Isaiah, more than 700 years before Christ was born, and that puts it more than 2,700 years uh, uh, in the past from today, was prophesying about these things. And there is a central question that is at the heart of everything in the 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah, and it is that question you see on your screen right now. How will God save his people from their sins and remain holy himself. In other words, how is God going to deal with our sins and clean us up from our sins without getting himself stained by them? That's the fundamental question of Scripture, really. And in fact, it's the fundamental question of life. And it's right at the heart of the book of Isaiah. And it started with a baby. It gives me wonderful joy when this time of the year comes every year to know that there are a lot of people who are thinking about Jesus that may not have spent a lot of time thinking about him in the other 364 and a quarter days of the year. And I always pray that God would use this time of year to open up somebody's heart to the truth, that I might be able to get right with God, 
might be able to begin an actual faithful daily walk with him from this moment forward and forevermore. I appreciate Brother Greenfield reading the scripture reading this morning coming to us from Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government. He's going to be king. And his government will never stop growing in power. The souls over which he will reign will never stop growing in numbers. And I find this to be an incredibly encouraging point because things ebb and flow in society. Sometimes they're better than others and sometimes they're worse than others. And we all know that this is true. It's true in a small way just in our own daily lives. You know, there's some good weeks and there's some bad weeks. There's some good days and bad days, good years and bad years. Even in the bad years, there's some good. Even in the good years, there's some bad. That's life, right? But the same thing is true for centuries, for eras, for cultural phenomena as it comes and goes as societies change and they ebb and they flow and all of that sort of thing. And so there are some generations, there have been, I think, four, if I remember correctly, four so-called great awakenings in the history of, you know, the world since, since the time of Christ. That is, huge periods where there are massive revivals that sweep across all of the civilization and the churches grow and flourish and this is great. And people would think, well, man, the kingdom is really growing, the gospel is really working, and, and the, the truth is bearing so much fruit and so many people are being saved. This is the period of time in which the kingdom grows. Then we have periods like we're kind of in right now where the dominant mindset about righteousness and sin and all that sort of stuff in society is, I don't know, I don't care, or I'm mad that you're even asking. <laughs> and it, it seems in the periods of time that, that the church, growing the church is very difficult because so many people around you in culture just don't really see the need. They don't really care about the testimony of the gospel, and it would be easy for folks to think, well, I mean, just think, things aren't working. The, the promise isn't, it isn't being fulfilled. The, the kingdom is not growing right now. Listen, brothers and sisters, Jesus has never lost a single faithful servant ever. Ever. Those of our forefathers that have passed on, Two on our minds very recently. They're not lost. They're not lost to Jesus. They're with Jesus. They're still his subjects. He's still their king. He's reigning over them. In fact, you might say he's got them even more securely than he ever has. And so the kingdom doesn't stop growing, it never stops growing. On the last day of this world's existence, when we hear the trumpet sound of God, when that last soul is plunged beneath the waters of baptism and united in Christ, the kingdom will still have been growing right there until the trumpet call. Praise the Lord of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. But in order for this all to be accomplished, the baby had to grow up. He had to become not just a man, but the man of sorrows. I'm going to read the first 12 verses of Isaiah chapter 53. 
And, of course, this passage is fairly well known, but it's very powerful because if, if you're not blind, and I mean this in all kindness, but if you're not blind and you know anything about the gospel of Jesus and what he's done for us, it is, it's impossible not to recognize this, again, more than seven centuries before Jesus is even born. We have this passage that bears witness to the kind of life that he was going to live, the kind of ministry that he was going to accomplish, the kind of death that he was going to die for the sake of saving souls. Isaiah 53, the prophet writes, Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful, nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. It was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. You see how Isaiah embodies the spirit of Israel. It's as if Israel has now seen the light of the Messiah and is realizing their mistake, you see. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done nothing wrong. He had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal and put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life. And the Lord's good plan will pl prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. That's our Lord Jesus. That's the life that began in those humble circumstances in the manger. No room at the end, at the end. He was rejected by decent society from the start. If you've ever felt like, man, nothing seems to go right for me lately. Understand that nothing went right for Jesus ever. <laughs> Not from the beginning until the very end, but because it was the will of the Heavenly Father in the end, it was all right. And exactly what we all needed to happen. And the Bible teaches us that He is coming back to save those who trust in Him. Although I must warn you, when He does come back to save those who trust in Him, 
He is also going to do the dirty work of dealing with those who don't. It's an essential thing that he's got to do before the slate can be wiped clean, before the blissful eternity of heaven can actually begin. He's got to deal with those who could not find it in their hearts to love a humble, suffering, self-sacrificing Messiah. And I want to put it in those terms because that's what rejecting Jesus is. My friends, we need to be in the truth and realize that rejecting the offer of salvation from Jesus is the ugliest thing that a soul can do. You can't do anything worse than reject Jesus because nothing greater has ever been done for anybody than what Jesus did on the cross for you and me. People that don't recognize how ugly sin is and that don't recognize how beautiful the cross is and what a blessed promise and, and what a glorious hope the empty tomb is sometimes find it hard to comprehend how hell could be just but you need to come to God. Reason together with him. The last passage for this morning is Isaiah chapter 66, the very end of the book. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 18 through 24. Would you listen? Verses 18 through 24. This is the way that this book of prophecy closes. I can see what they are doing, God speaking. I can see what they are doing, and I know what they are thinking. So I will gather all nations and people together, and they will see my glory. I will perform a sign among them, and I will send those who survive to be messengers to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, who are famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to all the lands beyond the sea that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will declare my glory to the nations. In other words, he's going to give the world a sign, and that sign is the cross and the empty tomb. And those who are won over by that sign will do what the church has been doing ever since. We will go into all the world and we will preach the gospel to every creature this is what Isaiah is prophesying in this passage verse 20 they will bring the remnant of your people back from every nation they will bring them to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord they will ride on horses and chariots and wagons and on mules and camels said the Lord and I will appoint some of them to be my priests and Levites I the Lord have spoken as surely as my new heavens and earth will remain so you will always be my people with a name that will never disappear says the Lord all humanity will come to worship me from, the, from week to week and from month to month. And as they go out, they will see the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me. For the worms that devour them will never die. Jesus quotes this part of the passage in the book of Mark, speaking of hell. The worms that devour them will never die, and the fire that burns them will never go out. All who pass by will view them with utter I don't want to end this lesson on a note of utter horror, but it is important if we are to be people who are going to deal with sin in truth, forward that slide please, if we're going to be people who deal with sin truthfully, realistically, properly, we've got to recognize that there are consequences for sin. God is just. Sin, listen. Sin will be punished. You will either bear the punishment yourself or it will be borne by Jesus in your behalf. 
But there are no other options. There is no other way. There is no other hope. You cannot shrug off your sinfulness. Being angry about being judged will do nothing good for you. You cannot build up a monument to yourself of your good works and somehow expect that all of your sins are going to be neatly hidden behind that, that God is not going to see them. None of that is going to work. You're going to have to be like Isaiah and confess the truth about it. But more importantly, you need not to recognize so much the wrath or the harshness of God, but you need to see through it all the goodness and the kindness mercy of God who himself in the person of his son was willing to leave the glories and bliss of heaven and live 33 and a half years suffering being persecuted being rejected being mistreated and finally to be executed in the most excruciating way that humanity has ever devised to torture another person to death in order to bear the cost of your sins. That's the goodness of God. That's the beauty and the grace. That's the generosity of God, the forbearance of God, the patience of God. It is the love of God, and it ought to draw you to the foot of the cross in your heart. It ought to, it ought to bring you to your knees in the presence of Jesus. It ought to make you not only glory in, in the little baby in that manger, but as you look at the baby in that manger, it ought to make you think of the suffering man on the cross. But more importantly, you ought to think now of the man who endured the cross and was laid in the tomb, but got up again. He came to life again. He became superior to death, to suffering, to disease, to accidents, to misfortunes, to war, to famine. He became superior to it all. And today he is seated as the resurrected king at the right hand of the glory of God, and he is coming back for me and he is coming back for you there is salvation in no one else it's Jesus or it's nothing this morning we can praise the Lord that there is in fact salvation and if you don't experience the joy of salvation today you've come to the right place I hope that you will think this through we always extend the invitation song in our services. The front pews are open. This morning, if you are a baptized believer and you need the prayers of this church for any reason, we would be glad to offer them to heaven on your behalf. We want nothing more than for you to leave this assembly today right with the Lord and encouraged and feeling the presence of God in your life and, and, and being empowered to move forward in, into the, this week and the rest of this year and in the new year, trusting in Jesus and, and faithfully walking with him. That's the pathway of salvation. This morning, if you've never yet named the name of Christ, if you've never made that decision to turn from sinful living, and you know that you're guilty of sin, you haven't obeyed the command to be baptized for the forgiveness of sin, the water is ready today. You could be baptized into Christ on Christmas Day. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? If you're subject to the invitation, we plead with you to come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.